Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Here we are. Another episode. This month, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Judah's son, Josiah. Those of you who have been following along will recall that uh, the three of us had a conversation about Jordan Peterson a while back. He contacted me and said he was interested in discussing things. We had a great conversation for about an hour. I'm not going to say a heck of a lot more about it right now. Although there is one issue that if I can remember what exactly it was, I'd like to kind of weigh in on. It has something to do with this negotiation between the ideal and the real. I'd say that pretty much anyone interested in thinking along these lines, which would mean those who listen to these podcasts, I can't imagine that you'd bother listening if you weren't thinking along these lines, or at least interested in this line of thinking, are basically trying to figure out what the heck do we do given the circumstance that we find ourselves in. And the trick seems to be that while we need to be practical if we're going to stick around in this world, we also need to have some sense of something possible other than what's going on presently. And things have happened the way they have because on some level or another, it's practical for at least someone, and quite often it's practical for those who have the most say in things, let's put it that way. I see little chance that that's going to change much, but on the other hand, people do have a tendency to set up things that fundamentally undermine them, particularly when it's a grand scheme. And I think of that as being one of the most hopeful things. And perhaps that's why I've uh, started to ramble on a bit more than I was originally intending to at the beginning of this episode, because I do want to provide some sense of balance. Because quite often on this podcast, we do um, paint a somewhat dismal picture of what's going on. And I think there are pretty good reasons for that attitude, but I also think that we shouldn't lose hope because even the grandest schemes from the wisest and cleverest minds, which are not always the same thing, will often end in failure. And so we can hope that some of the schemes that seem to be afoot right now will, will meet a, uh, a similar fate. Now, of course, uh, quite often when spectacular plans fail, they uh, fail for the, the, the fallout effects more than just the people who made the plan. So that's a concern. But uh, the idea that somehow or another the powers that be are going to be able to pull off what they have in mind, uh, I think we should always be suspect of that. And so all of that kind of, let's say, for the sake of brevity, Alex Jones paranoia, that there's going to be this kind of one-world government that's going to seize control over everything? I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that quite often things don't work out as intended even with the greatest amount of intelligence and power. So, um, so being realistic in the face of, of what's currently going on, I think basically means 
recognizing the fact that we really don't know what the outcome is going to be. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. I think some of that is covered in the course of this discussion, but it seemed worth maybe just doing a little bit of standing back and getting perspective before we dive in to what I think is a really enjoyable hour spent with Josiah. Hope you find it of interest, and of course, if you want to support these efforts, it's not all that difficult to do so. Even if you don't have any extra cash lying around, uh, you can always spread the word, And uh, because I'm terrible at doing that. So if someone else doesn't do it, it's just going to be you and me. You, somewhere around the number between 30 and 100, uh, and, uh, and yours truly. That's what we got going on here right now, which isn't bad. How often do any of us get to talk to a room full of uh, somewhere between 30 and 100 people? I consider that to be uh, a great uh, privilege. And so, uh, you know, there's no reason why anyone would have to tune into this thing. And yet, some, some of you are continuing to tune in. I don't know who you are. I know a few of you. But I don't know most of you. So I think that's, uh, you know, it could be that you're tuning in for reasons other than what I would hope for. And if that's the case, well, you're welcome to. That's what this platform is all about, right? Isn't that the basic idea of the Internet? Is that everyone would, quote-unquote, have a voice, which basically means that anyone can hear what the hell anyone's willing to say. So I've come to peace with that. You know, I'll, I'll say what I think. Because I think uh, that the only thing that saved me from being a completely miserable person was that there were some people out there who were willing to say what they thought. And I really appreciate that, because otherwise I would be lost. So I'm not saying that I have as much to offer as some of the people who uh, helped me out, but um, you know, there are certain things that I don't hear being said, and so I'm doing my best to say them in the kind of circuitous way that I do, and uh, and yeah, so if you think it's worthwhile, there are links, you could do something if you want, and I would greatly appreciate it. Enjoy the show. And we're rolling. All right. Yeah. Josiah, welcome back. Hello. How are you doing? You. I'm all right. I'm doing good. I think it's going to get kind of warm in here. I'm going to have to take this uh, sweater off here yeah. in a minute. Yeah, probably. All right, well, before that happens, uh, what are we talking about today? Well, you know, I came down here to talk about a variety of things, really. All right, good. But, uh, Smorgasbord. Yeah, one of, the real, one of like the really deep things that I was wanting to talk to you about is this uh, philosophical issue between realism and idealism. All right. If you're familiar with those. Well, I can guess what it means, but why don't you tell me what it means? Well, I'm, to, my, to my understanding, because I'm only 19 years old and... <laughs> only beginning to learn how to think. Well, I'm in my 50s and I'm in the same boat. So, uh, okay. Well, uh, I, to my understanding, realism is that uh, you see an object and you see the pretty much the totality of the object and then you're able to interact with it. Whereas idealism is you see the object but there's a structure that creates the, uh, the value for you of what to do with the object. Well, it seems that we're going to have to discuss the nature of perception mm-hmm. in order to unpack this one. Mm-hmm. So to what extent is realism realistic? 
Uh, that, that's a good question. I'm I'm not I'm not too positive. I'm more on the idealistic end of things. Okay. Yeah, I believe I because I came to a, a, an understanding that uh, well, when we look at something, we don't look at uh, what to do with it per se, really, um, because we see something and we have an a priori structure that tells us how to interact with the object. Like this microphone here, I'm talking into the microphone. I could be doing a hundred million different things with the microphone mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, I'm not doing with it at the moment because my brain is telling me to talk into it instead. And you know, a hundred million other things, most of them probably wouldn't be all that constructive. Mm-hmm. Although there's probably a few things that people haven't yet done with microphones that might be worth exploring. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, that, um, that's, so you're saying that's, that's that, that kind of where I lie on. So the, there's a the construct idea. in essence that's unavoidable, mm-hmm. and that that fundamentally is the idealist stance that there is some sort of an object is fundamentally always going to be colored by the one who's viewing it. Mm-hmm. There's there's a barrier in between seeing the thing in itself and the thing. So then there's the difference between the thing itself and the seeing of the thing. And mm-hmm. in a certain sense, I think that's the difference between the realism and the idealism, right? Mm-hmm. You could say that the realism is a recognition that there is some absolute reality, perhaps, and that we might do best to try to figure out what that is. Exactly. Although yeah. I think in some fundamental way, that's always going to be limited mm-hmm. because we have a limited capacity to perceive and we have a limited position within space and time to do that perceiving. Mm-hmm. Although there are some who say, well, those, those uh, limitations can be transcended to some extent mm-hmm. if we get ourselves out of the way. Yeah, if, but, if, we, if we just get ourselves out of the way, then we can look at things objectively and see the whole. Um, I mean, I don't think we can see the, the totality of the object, but we can get a, a more clear picture of what the object actually is. So to some extent, idealism is always going to get in the way of what an object actually is. Mm-hmm. It seems that to, uh, the goal is to reach a sort of realism, but idealism stands in the way. Or you could say that realism is philosophically most interesting, but practically idealism seems to do the job better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe we don't have to choose one or the other. Maybe they're basically both... Uh, valid ways of attempting to n- navigate the world. Mm-hmm. It seems like quite often philosophical concepts are posed in con- in kind of contrast to each other, which seems to suggest that you have to choose category A or B. Uh-huh. And it's sort of like the left-right uh, dilemma that we're currently going through the horrible contortions of. Yeah. And I'm not really convinced that, you know, I, I remember a long time ago someone once said, to me, if you're given a choice between A and B, choose C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good saying. Yeah. So, what would be choice C when it comes to the uh, idealism versus realism? Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good question. <laughs> uh, Let's uh, ponder that while we take off the sweater. Yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, I would say that uh, to use both of them, really. Yeah. You know, use both of them in a sense. Well, you mm. know, there's this wonderful and much maligned concept called the Hegelian dialectic, mm-hmm. which, uh, which basically goes, there's a number of different ways that it's formulated, but one of them is that, uh, the way I think of it is that if you uh, propose something, anything, so in a certain sense, like anything which comes into being mm-hmm. is an, in essence a proposition. And so anything that 
can be identified mm-hmm. automatically becomes negated just by mere fact that it's there. Mm-hmm. So that fundamental interaction produces what's concrete. So the, he's, it's formulated sometimes, they'll say, there's the abstract and you have the negation and that forms the concrete. And there's another version of it where they talk about there's a thesis, so you propose something. Mm-hmm. Then there's the antithesis. And then what really results is the synthesis, uh-huh. which is where the, the opposites do their tango, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a beautiful way of formulating pretty much all ideas. And you know, a lot of people hate that because it was kind of taken by Marx and turned into this dialectical materialism. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. there's a whole bunch of people who feel that Hegel was a nightmare and it's probably true. But you know, it seems like he had at least one incredibly brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice nice way of summarizing it, I think. Uh-huh. I think, From what I understand, yeah, I'm pretty sure Hegel had a lot to say, uh, quite a bit to say about the issue of idealism as well. He would, uh, to my understanding, he would say that uh, our own concepts stand in the way of seeing the percept in itself. So, mm-hmm. so when we're looking at uh, something, that our concept of what that already is is projected out and uh, forms our perception of what it actually of what it is that we're looking at. So that's exactly what the idealistic stance is. And it, it, you know, in some ways you could say, yes, we uh, culturally inherit a number of, a large number of preconceptions about what things are Mm -hmm. and that it's through kind of reexamining that that we're able to free ourselves from some of those preconceptions. Although the extent to which we're ever really able to approach the real, I think, is, again, a huge question. Probably, I think, very, yeah, it's not going to happen, really. Yeah. You know, there's a great word that a friend of mine recently introduced me to. It's called a paragon. So I think it's spelled A-P-E-R-I-G-O-N, mm-hmm. something like that. And it basically means an object that has an infinite number of sides. Uh-huh. And so basically almost any object is fundamentally in a paragon. You can, you can view it from so many different angles. And through the course of time, there's always going to be another way of seeing it. Mm-hmm. So... I think there's there's some kind of fundamental reality to that that we can't necessarily transcend. But on the other hand, why not give it a whirl? You know, there's mm-hmm. there's definitely some benefit to opening up the range of what we think is is possible and seeing things anew. And there is also a benefit of having some kind of anchors with which mm-hmm. to, you know, yeah. just behave. Because yeah, if you have to reanalyze everything about existence, it's almost impossible to function. Yeah. Oh, it would be impossible to function. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to even see anything, really. Well, yeah, I guess that uh, there's that woman who had the experience of having a stroke who happened to be an expert at people who have strokes. Mm-hmm. You've heard about this? Yeah, and she wrote down her experience while it was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a way, like what it sounds like happened is that all the filters were off and it was just sort of raw, unmediated experience mm-hmm. that made it almost impossible to do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe in a way, like the mind is basically a gigantic filter that helps us to make sense out of what would otherwise be an overwhelming experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. yeah, to my understanding, she, she wrote down while, while having her stroke that 
it felt as if the barrier between external and internal were were completely gone, separated. It's fascinating. As if she was just one with the, with everything that was happening. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, we typically think of a stroke as being one of the worst things that could happen to mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. but that you know puts it in a somewhat different light, right there. Yeah. So that's kind of a reconsideration of the of the, whatever the common ideal is of that kind of a medical problem. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I think she was pretty happy to uh, get out of that state. Yeah. You, know, you might say that in some ways that's that's true of a lot of uh, heightened states of awareness. That, mm-hmm. You know, you can only withstand them for so long mm-hmm. before you go crazy. Really? Yeah, I mean, there's the moment in the Bhagavad Gita. Have you re- have you read that? I have not. No. So it's uh, it's a long dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna, and Arjuna is a warrior who's having difficulty with the battle that he's presented with, and Krishna's giving him spiritual advice. You might say, and mm-hmm. at one point, Arjuna asks Krishna to reveal his true form. And it's so overwhelming and terrifying that Arjuna soon thereafter asks him to go back to <laughs> what he appeared to be before. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it seems like people have been thinking about this kind of an issue for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we always want to transcend the circumstances we find ourselves in, and in some ways that's how things are moved forward. But mm-hmm. on another level, we're really in trouble if we lose the foundation of what our lives are depending on. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways that's actually really a relevant topic right now. Uh Yeah. And I think when you, when you lose one level of foundation, you, the automatic instinct is to regress back to the level that was before that. Or what if the level, there is no level before that? Well, yeah, I don't know. You know, it seems that quite often when a foundation crumbles, there's not a heck of a lot underneath it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because typically a foundation is built from the wreckage of a previous foundation. So there's not a hell of a lot there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always kind of treading on thin ice in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Tricky stuff, really tricky stuff. And I think absolutely relevant to what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. We're seeing, uh, oh, and understandably, for a long time, Western civilization has been through a number of reconsiderations and a lot of attacks. Mm-hmm. Many for good reason, and some maybe not so. Mm-hmm. And right now, we appear to be kind of at a uh, at a pivotal turning point. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think like well, it's it's good to criticize Western civilization. It's good to criticize anything because without the criticism, there's no way to move forward, mm-hmm. right? But to tear down instead of build off of the criticism is is very dangerous and something that you should. Very, take very lightly. Absolutely. So this gets back to our first uh, discussion about Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he would completely agree with that point of view. And yet, you know, the the temptation to try to imagine a new world, you know, idealism in some ways could be seen as something which is not only holding us to older ways of thinking, but which... Uh, tempts us forward with some kind of a new construction. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of utopian idealism mm-hmm. that um, that's based upon the effort to find some new way of being. And particularly when one becomes really uh, profoundly aware of all the problems with the present paradigm, it's really tempting to want to try to construct something better. But mm-hmm. 
you know, there's a lot of smart people who have made efforts along those lines that have ended pretty disastrously. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems to be one of Peterson's uh, emphases. Yeah, I've heard him say before that uh, um, implementing uh, something into a social system usually uh, backfires and doesn't have the outcome, the desired outcome expected. Mm-hmm. And that you, you should make the minimal um, necessary changes before trying to change something in its totality. I think particularly in a time of difficulty where there's a lot of uh, confusion, chaos, and decay, that very small moves would be wise. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but people have a tendency to feel in an emergency that extreme measures are required. And that is, I think, the terrible temptation that leads to real disaster. There's also, we are kind of in a mess you know, even even if we were to put aside the crisis that's presently upon us, the overall trajectory of history has been pretty disastrous mm-hmm. for a very long time. And you might say that maybe what we really lost was an appreciation of the natural world. It seems that if we want to know how something's going to be functional, how it might actually really work instead of just kind of idealistically putting out utopian notions, Mm -hmm. we might look to the natural world to guide us. Mm -hmm. In some respects, it seems like that's almost entirely absent, particularly from the political conversation. Mm -hmm. So we have this notion of uh, environmentalism, and some people think of that as being a really important uh, topic, although really I don't hear it discussed that much. It doesn't seem, because it's, you know, when it comes down to it, most people are preoccupied with just trying to survive. Uh Uh-huh. It seems like one of those problems that people will uh, act as if they uh, care very much, yeah, <laughs> right. But then won't implement what they're telling. One other of the people. many problems that people act as if they care about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because- well, in some ways, it's pretty abstract, so it's difficult to really care about it. And of course, there is always the potential that we don't quite understand it. Yeah, yeah. So- I mean, uh, uh, even scientists don't really fully understand how the climate is changing and for people most people don't go and look at the science behind this type of stuff right so they're really just sounding alarms to problems that they don't really know about yep and then it becomes you know a political football that gets you know pushed around and beaten and you Mm -hmm. know held high and all the various things that one does with a football yeah well you have the you have the left saying that this is the most important thing in the world and then you and then you'll always have the kickback of the opposite saying the right, and the right saying, well, this isn't even a problem. Hegel back in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's infuriating. And, you know, uh, I think that one of the reasons you're interested in discussing this is that you feel a certain urgency that, you know, we have to get our heads on straight in order to address the issues that we're confronted with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely believe that. Looking at the world, it's 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 almost impossible for me to to see how that would be possible for everyone to uh, critically think about issues and take rationality into uh, context into the, uh, very serious problems. Well, I think one of the very few things we can be absolutely certain about is uh, that there will always be a small number of people who are making the effort to think rationally. Mm-hmm. And not be carried away by various emotions. 
that's where my optimism lies in those uh, those individuals that are do- doing what they feel fit uh, and critically thinking and bringing rationality into 21st century conversations. I think it's a very important thing, but I don't think it's sufficient in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is what I just mentioned, because you could say that, well, fundamentally, human nature isn't rational, mm-hmm. and so that's why it's only a small number of people who participate in this kind of dialogue. And so we're basically pretending that somehow or another the world is operating on the basis of rationality because only, you know, only a rational world can be dealt with rationally. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, the world consists of this other domain that's extraordinarily powerful and which is really far more prevalent than mm-hmm. the, the realm of pure thought. Uh-huh. But we do have the ability to perceive that within the realm of the rational we just have to remember to take it into account. <laughs> mm-hmm. So something that I've read from Jung so far is he said, um, uh, m- most of our thinking is irrational, so to get rid of that would be a catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess, I mean, unless, you know, I think a lot of people find that most of their experience is something they might prefer to not be going through. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that, you know, people might be introduced to a more rational way of thinking, it may help. I found it helped. You know? oh, oh, definitely. Yeah. I think it'll definitely help to a certain extent. Yeah. But if you throw away the irrational state of mind, I... Right. I, I, uh, it's not just hum- humanity either. Like, yeah. the, the universe does not operate on rational principles. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, clearly, whatever it is that rationality is doing in the universe, it's playing, uh, let's say it's negotiating with chaos. I mean, in essence, that's the way the Greeks thought of it, that the universe is fundamentally a negotiation between order and chaos, Mm -hmm. and that rationality is the thing which attempts to find order and attempts to impose order, and that chaos is what it's up against, in essence. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know exactly what I would, you know, it seems like there's a lot more chaos than order, but there's clearly a fair amount of order built into the universe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from my perspective, that suggests... Uh, a kind of uh, universal consciousness because it seems that order doesn't happen without consciousness. Mm-hmm. So it is, there is a kind of, I think, rationality to the universe, but it's not the primary characteristic. It's not the only characteristic, mm-hmm. let's Well, that say. kind of plays into the yin and the yang where order and chaos, where there's there's the chaos inside of the order too. It's the white dot inside the black serpent. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. chaos within the order. In a certain sense, they can't help but become the other. The one mm-hmm. always becomes the other. So even the, the best laid plans will fall apart eventually. Mm-hmm. So even the most meticulously constructed civilization will at some point or another fall to chaos. It's just every system fundamentally is only uh, adapted to a particular moment in time and space. Mm-hmm. So it's impossible to have something that would be, that would persevere and have uh, endless success so maybe we're getting to the point where uh, the system that we've been living in for, I don't even know what, where to begin. Let's say maybe from the classical period, because it's kind of all based on that, mm-hmm. right? So maybe that system is starting to get a little threadbare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, what should we do about that? Well, I think we do have to... Uh, uh, be prepared for whatever may occur. Mm-hmm. I read a book when I was uh, maybe about your age, Foundation and Empire 
by Isaac Asimov. And in it, there is a recognition by one of the main characters that civilization, he's talking about like a galactic civilization, so Mm -hmm. it's a science fiction book. And he's recognizing that they're going to go through a dark period, that basically it's going to have its own collapse of galactic civilization and that uh, it would be a certain number of years before there would be rebirth. Mm -hmm. And his approach was to try to make that dark period as short as possible. That was his sort of goal. So he, they developed this concept called psychohistory, which is sort of like a psychological way of viewing history. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the details, but <laughs> it was through this kind of system that, um, that large numbers of people were able to be sort of trained to deal with the adversity that was heading their way and to then be able to mitigate what might have otherwise been a complete catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Because we can imagine all kinds of scenarios where the wheels really come off this thing and it unravels to the point where it's almost impossible for life to continue, or at least life as we know it. Mm -hmm. And we can imagine scenarios where we're able to weather some pretty rough storms ahead and kind of keep our center to some degree so that when the opportunity arises again and things are a little calmer, a better life is again possible. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if those are the only you know, possibilities. Mm-hmm. There, there, of course, everyone would love it if we could just save the day and turn this turkey around, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's looking... It's looking uh-huh. Less and less possible by the day, really. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Sadly, that's true. And it also appears that there are powerful forces at play who uh, have no interest in saving the day. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. that's uh, that's also, although, you know, we could reappraise that notion. So we could say that that's an ideal, an idea. Mm-hmm. Not an ideal, but yeah. It falls into the idealism category. Right, so we're, mm. we're looking at an object. So we're looking at the object of those who have power to do something, right? And we have, you know, it's pretty clear that if we compare the actions of those in power with what we think would be responsible, beneficial actions of people in power, it looks like they're doing everything they can to not address the issues that we're confronted with. Mm-hmm. But it's possible that there's another thing going on. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, one way of looking at it is, well, the West, which is, you know, maybe the, it's a, it's a loose term, but it roughly covers, you know, the United States and Europe and, it's, and their allies, mm-hmm. right? So the West has enjoyed a, a dominant position, particularly economically and militarily, for a long time, and that has created a uh, an imbalance in the world. And so, it may be that the powers that be are uh, trying to bring the West into line with what the rest of the world is going through. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, from a global management point of view, would make sense, particularly when you know the average wage of a person in the third world is a fraction of what people in in the west are 
are making. And, mm-hmm. and life, you know, the sort of uh, quality of life and the lifestyles that are able to be managed, you know, for a long time, everyone in the West has recognized how crazy it is that we're all driving around these vehicles and flying around the planes and just the incredible amount of resource that's used up mm-hmm. by this Western way of living. Mm-hmm. We haven't been able to curtail it ourselves. We don't have that kind of self-discipline, and our lives don't really allow it because if you try to, and I know a few people who have, you quite often can't participate in the economy. Mm-hmm. So it's incredibly difficult to, to change that type of behavior. And so it may be that the powers that be are doing what they feel they need to do in order to readjust that whole uh, global dynamic, you could say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then they would be implementing social like change to a social structure. Well, yeah, it seems that you know uh, liberty in this context it gets in the way of there being a change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of people who are thinking that what we're heading towards as a global civilization one way or another is something along the lines of what's happening in China which has been characterized by people like um, Shoshana Zuboff as surveillance capitalism mm-hmm. so basically a very tightly controlled population that's uh, doing their best to manage their resources as carefully as possible but which are competing in some way or another to uh, to keep a sort of vibrant uh, activity happening, uh, all of which is overseen by you know a, a bureaucratic structure that's uh, that has a kind of absolute power fundamentally and can step in whenever they want to, regardless of the circumstance, and pretty much do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So I would I I would probably say that that's kind of like a totalitarian capitalism. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of uh, freedom in there to give people some play so that they can have some enjoyment in life. And that's, wh- that's where the capitalism would come into play, right? right? I think that's probably what they would want to encourage the most, would mm-hmm. be that that freedom would happen within the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a dismal picture, and uh, a lot of, there's a lot of good reasons why none of us would ever want to live under a system like that. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to be completely honest about it, I think you know we can at least make the case that there's a good reason why the system that we've been living under might be under attack and might be, uh, let's say, um, the powers that be are trying to do a soft um, demolition job on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they're going to be successful. You know, this is a country that has a long tradition of liberty. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, I don't even have Definitely. to say, yeah, I mean, liberty is, an, is, it manifests itself in many different ways. A lot of people emphasize liberty in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And some of those ways are incredibly selfish. Mm-hmm. So there's that, you know, mm-hmm. we have that legacy to deal with. But in some, on some fundamental level, liberty is what makes life worth living. Yeah, I would... <laughs> I would say that liberty is one of my top five um, values. So. Yeah, I mean, mine too. And, and I'm, I'm not saying any of this because I want it to be this way or because I think it's a good thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, well, we can look at it in these terms and we can imagine that that might be something that's actually going on um, and when it comes to the big game mm-hmm. that's being played. So in some ways that I think is helpful to kind of frame 
at least some of the possibilities of what we're experiencing. And maybe that also helps us to see other ways of imagining a way of dealing with it because there is a tendency now to respond to things by just defiantly claiming our right to be whatever we want to be. You know, that's a limited negotiation type of stance. It only works to a certain extent, really. (laughs) (laughs) Like when you get to the point where you're denying science because of your liberty, I think that that goes too far. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say that, you know, uh, there are those who are trying to deny people liberty or also denying science. Mm-hmm. So the denial of science seems to be, well, it, when it's politically expedient, everyone does it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that doesn't bode well because on some basic level, the sciences are the core of what keeps the civilization running right now. So if we start to erode that, then we're basically eroding the the technology that we rely on in order to keep things rolling, mm-hmm. you know, which again points to the kind of disaster that might make uh, the species irrelevant at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we might also, you know, if we're going to continue in this line of looking at the paragon, all the various sides of this object, and kind of reconsidering our idealistic uh, presumptions, you know. Uh, humanity itself, not just the West, but humanity itself has a problematic relationship with the world, oh, with yeah. this with this natural world that we're in. Mm-hmm. And so, on, so, you know, a lot of people have been saying, well, at some point or another, nature's going to take care of us. Yeah, it, it seems like that's pretty well... Uh, if you're living on the West Coast, it seems like that would... T- is going on. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we've, we've done it to ourselves. Yeah. But then the question might be, uh, how much was nature involved in that? We, when we speak of human nature, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, democracy means rule by uh, nature spirits or demons. That's what demos is. So mm-hmm. the daemon is like the inner urge, right? Mm-hmm. Which isn't the rational part of us. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, quite often, large groups of people gather together and make irrational decisions mm-hmm. because they just want things to be a certain way. I, I've heard that... Uh- once a group is formed, the views of the individual are gone because the group has different views. That's one of the biggest problems when it comes to the hope that a rational dialogue will lead to a better outcome. Mm-hmm. Because at some point or another, you have to form a group or there's no political impact. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of beautiful ideas that have been thought over the centuries that have virtually no impact because there's never a group of people that could get behind it. Mm-hmm. And quite often, even if you have a, a, let's say, a halfway decent idea, as soon as a few people get behind it, it gets all screwed up. Yeah, it's, it's not the same idea. <laughs> <laughs> so is there an idea that would transcend all of those difficulties? That's a pretty big order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, my favorite one is is a very traditional one, which is that uh, there is a divine order. And this is somewhat related to the idea of looking to nature for a guide. Mm-hmm. But it also, I think, opens up into the spiritual domain. So the idea that there is a divine order and that we are fundamentally ignorant of it. And that so fundamentally, it's up to God how mm-hmm. things turn out. 
and that we should maintain that kind of humble position with respect to what's going on. Like, do the best with what we can, because there's always like garbage that needs to be cleaned up. Mm-hmm. There's always something that has to be done, right? And in some ways, leave the big question to the big guy mm-hmm. or whatever. You don't have to say guy. I said guy. I'm sorry for those of you who get offended by that. I'm really not that sorry because I guess, you know, the big kahuna, Uh (laughs) the great spirit, however you want to refer to it, you know, because on some fundamental level, you can't deny, and this is something that science does all the time, right? Science is always putting us in our place by going, oh, we're like on a little rock Mm -hmm. next to a somewhat not all that extraordinarily sized star, and then there's like, I mean, just within the solar system, we don't seem to really have all that significant of a position. And then compared to whatever else is going on in our galaxy, we're just out on the edges of it. And then apparently there's all these other galaxies going on. And we, I mean, we don't really know any of that, but it does kind of put us into this position of like, oh, well, there really are forces at play that are way bigger than mm-hmm. anything we can ever get our hands on, yeah. you know? Now I got a question because you said <laughs> you said we're mostly fundamentally ignorant to it. Is it that we're fundamentally ignorant or that we're just hysterically confused by it? Well, I think that we're fundamentally ignorant as to what it is well, that's and sure. where it's going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like we have some basic ideas and I think, you know, some of it makes some sense. But, uh, you know, and the when you open up the time frame and you consider, again, the just relatively short history of human civilization, mm-hmm. right? And all of the stuff that we're wrapped up in and thinking about is basically like, how do we solve this human civilization problem, right? Uh-huh. And we've come up with a number of different ideas and they're all kind of competing. And because of the things that we've talked about, it doesn't seem like any one of them can ever really get an opportunity to prove to all the rest that they got the right idea Mm -hmm. because there's too much political capital on all the other sides, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe there's going to come a point where you get that kind of global totalitarianism and they're going to just go with one system and it's going to be like, okay, this is what we're doing on the planet, all human beings, right? We'll Mm -hmm. see whether or not it really works. You know, you can understand why in the war of ideas, one would want to have a chance to try to implement an idea without all of the conflict and, you know, it's not just that it's a disagreement. It's that there are agents who are going to go out of their way to try to undermine everything. And that's going to continue to happen, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as I can tell forever, unless, you know, human beings really lose all liberty and all sense of liberty, like all belief in, in the human aspiration for individual expression, for individual exploration. Mm -hmm that each individual life has its own kind of sanctity. I mean, these are all like core, core principles within the Western paradigm. And I think on some level, they're a core principle within many different spiritual traditions, but they also have a tendency to get shunted aside when issues of power come into play. And so the state really wants us to just be obedient servants that do the frickin' jobs that need to be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that tension has been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. So we need to find a, a mediator between power and these I- ideas or ideals. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, I think 
The pressures of a large population require a lot of coordination in order to avoid anarchy Mm -hmm. and war. And so individual liberty is always going to be under attack whenever you have large uh, aggregations of people. Large civilizations have to be organized in some way or another. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, well, where are we allowed to exercise some liberty? You know, and free expression, I think, is is a, a compromise. I don't know if I'd say it's a nice compromise, but it certainly is a compromise. Mm-hmm. But now even that's under attack. So the, the ability to speak freely. Yeah, well, the freedom of speech is under attack at the moment, mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a catastrophe. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a catastrophe for the, for the individual. Yeah, definitely. You know? I think because something that Jordan Peterson has taught me is that Truth is what extracts the order out of the chaos of potential. All right, you got to you got to go through that again. Yeah, I didn't I quite will. follow it. So, truth is what extracts the order out of the chaos of potential. Chaos of potential. What does so, that mean? So, the future. The future is just potential, okay. and it's all chaos. We don't know what'll happen. Anything could happen. So, when we speak the truth, we're extracting the order into a landscape that we can um, move on with, I guess. Well, I, I, progress. I guess I would separate those two things. I would say that, you know, you can derive truths from what you have been able to uh, perceive of what has happened. Mm-hmm. And then the second order of that would be you can use the the landscape of truth and the relationships that you see between them as a way of getting a sense of where things may be going. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that we can say anything true about the future with any definitive... I, I don't think the future exists, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard you say this before. Yeah. You said that <laughs> time isn't real, right? Well, yeah, I mean... along the lines of that. Strictly speaking, like the way that... Okay, so here's a great example of idealism. Mm-hmm. So time as an object. Like, Let's think about what that normally looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So if we take the, I would say, normal conception of time, it's something like a timeline, Mm -hmm. right? And people view, well, there's like a needle somewhere and that's where we are now. And everything to, let's say, the left of that needle is before Uh and everything to the right is after. And that's what time looks like, is this sort of like stretch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is this sense inherent within that that this is a thing that actually exists, that that timeline is real, and that the past is a real thing, mm-hmm. and that the future is a real thing. I don't think that's true. I think that the present is a real thing, but I think that everything else is basically processing in the mind. Consciousness gets information about events that occurred previously. Mm. All those events occurred now. It's just not the now that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. It was a now that happened earlier. There was nothing that happened in the past. The only thing that the only time anything ever happens is now. Mm-hmm. So, and that's going to be true in the future too. You know, it's gotten so insane. Here's a brilliant, interesting thing about uh, some of the problems in science right now. So, one of the interpretations of quantum mechanics says it's this many worlds hypothesis mm-hmm. that at every moment there's an infinite potential branching 
of quantum states that lead to an infinite number of universes where every possible outcome could potentially occur. Mm -hmm. That's an actual theory that's discussed in science now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I find that problematic. Why? Because what, what does it mean for there to be an... Where does the energy come from? If it's a conservation of energy, right, which is mm -hmm. a basic principle in, in science and physics, right? Mm -hmm. So where does the energy come from for infinite universes? Every single branching is like a whole other universe because it's not only the event that has to be uh, played out, but all of the various physical components of each different branching. Mm -hmm. You need to have all the energy for all of those things in a separate parallel universe happening. And that's like, basically, it's an exponential increase in the amount of energy at every single branching level because each of those now can branch to another. It's like fractional reserves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. you have a very small amount of original, actual hard money, right? And with each branching, there is just made up out of thin air. Where did this stuff come from? Mm -hmm. Highly problematic. I don't see how you can even call it a theory within physics. Mm -hmm. If physics means like what's happening within a physical domain, I mean, it's all well and good to say that this universe was created because something happened before the Big Bang. Yeah. But to say at every given instant, there's a whole universe being created on the basis of what? A quantum um, yeah. fluctuation? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I mean, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a fanciful idea. You know, is it impossible? Well, I guess nothing's impossible. But <laughs> yeah. is it likely? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kind of get a picture of what you're saying there. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Time, you know, maybe it's just my little hang-up and a fine point that I, that I always... Uh, kind of trip over. Mm -hmm. But I do think that when you think of time in, in this way, which is in, in essence to think of it as being a cognitive phenomena mm -hmm. that's an effort to process presence, basically. Mm -hmm. So you think it's bound up in the psyche? Yeah. Yeah? You know, basically all of the artifacts are interpretations of events that have some trace, like a mark, right? So mm -hmm. there's some evidence, physical evidence, or someone else's psyche saw evidence of it and they created a code or they wrote down in the code of their time what this thing was. And we try to decipher that and say, oh, yeah, now we understand about the past. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was an assembly of silence moment right there. Oh! Thanks for bringing that in. Yeah. It's been a while since I've had a real assembly of silence moment, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess, you know, not just because of COVID, but, uh, but now, you know, it's rare that people meet together. Mm-hmm. And so the assembly science moment is difficult to attain without mm. presence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the assembly silence moment is hovering ever in the background, eternally. <laughs> so do you have a sense of where we might want to go with this? Or do you feel like we've kind of covered uh, this? Or do you have, you said you had a bunch of things you wanted to talk about. I had a couple things. 
Uh, now they're not really coming to mind. I actually have a question for you. All right. Uh, how do? Um, are you a religious person? I guess you could say that. I mean, I'm not sure that I'm totally comfortable with the word religious. Spiritual. Uh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Now, uh, how do you reconcile your, uh, your spirituality with science? I don't see there being any conflict whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I would ask, well, what's the problem? <laughs> what's the conflict? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that there's uh, many things that, about spirituality that science can't explain so as, as far as we know them. Well, yeah, but I mean, there's many things that science can't explain even within the physical domain, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we just mentioned one theory about quantum mechanics that's one of many different theories. There's all kinds of different ideas just to try to explain what's happening within the physical world. And we still don't quite have that right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still a lot of disagreement. There's still a lot of different ideas. So do you, do you use the two as um, different modes of viewing the world? Yeah, I guess on some level you could say that science is the rational mm-hmm. and spiritual takes care of everything else because if you there's a lot of things you cannot approach with the rational. Mm, definitely. There's, and and it's I think irrational to think that you can reduce the world to the things which are just rational. Mm-hmm. There are so many things that fall outside of that purview. Mm-hmm. And so how are you going to deal with those things? You know, we can we can deal with them within the rational domain in one of two ways. One is we ignore them, which is a terrible idea, and it's unfortunately I think the basic approach that science has <laughs> has taken. Yeah. You know, yeah. And the other is that we say, well, let's be clear that this is a domain that we can't really approach with this technique and just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Now, is that sufficient? I mean, it's still basically ignoring the majority of experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we really, you know, we fail to consider the totality of experience if we turn our backs to the unknown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think a, I think a good example of the uh, rational and irrational problem, like spirituality and science, um, is uh, psychedelics and how they were pushed away from our culture in the seventies hmm. um, because I. To my understanding, they send you to a, uh, I'd say, an irrational state of thinking that brings many profound thoughts, ideas, and uh, experience. Really, mm-hmm. and, and and we really don't know how to how to deal with that. Well, it's interesting, you know. Like they just had this thing on the on the ballot here about mm-hmm. um, about making it legal to treat. Uh, various kind of mental illness issues with psilocybin, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that I agree with you that um, that we were pushed away from it in the '70s. I think actually it was, in many respects, it was uh, inculcated. It was not within the the entirety of uh, society, but there were literally like government programs where people were being given large doses of LSD. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but 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 then they were sent to a, a, an irrational state of mind, and and we made it illegal. Am I, well, yeah, but on the other hand, yeah. I mean, it was illegal, but it was at the same time. I think there's some evidence to suggest that uh, MK Ultra was the name of one of the programs. Mm-hmm. That it was ongoing through you know after the after, for instance, LSD was made illegal. MK Ultra was still active. 
Mm-hmm. And they were experimenting on all kinds of people, and some of it was, you know, in a controlled setting, and some of it wasn't. You know, some of it was just let's see what happens when we let this loose on society mm-hmm. in various ways, in various different groups, different groups of people that they wanted to, um, well, undermine. Really, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was thought of as being a potential uh, chemical weapon, basically. So, you know. Here's another interesting thing to consider, which is that quite often it's uh, the opening of individual experience that, uh, on a personal level, individual, mm-hmm. that um, enriches our own personal lives but creates confusion and difficulty within a group. So society is, is really um, always, I think, wary of these types of things because it does lead everyone off into their own world. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to get the cats back in the box like because once you have an experience like that, you're forever changed. Uh-huh. You can't really get that one back in the box. Mm-hmm. And so quite often people have a kind of crisis where they realized, shit, I can't keep doing this anymore, whatever the hell it was they were doing, mm-hmm. right? And they go in search of some other way of living. So it's it's actually an incredibly effective way of of breaking up communities, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, again, I'm I'm pre- presenting you with a a different point of view on on a uh, on an issue that we're all confronted with. You know, mm-hmm. at this point, I think it's fair to say that Western civilization has uh, more people who have. Had various drug experiences than who haven't, mm-hmm. you know. I would say and in so. some ways, it's it's really a a, a big part of our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a cost to that, and in some ways, the um, the kind of fragility that we see within community. I'm using the air quotes there for community, uh-huh. right? Uh, may be one of the byproducts of that. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult. Like we have some kind of a realization that. You know, we can't quite fully express. It's not fully rational, but on some level, we sort of know that something happened, mm-hmm. and it's it's with us. And maybe we make some effort to try to convey it with others, but it's always like, well, yeah, man, mine was a wild too. You know, like you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, so everyone has their own kind of like isolate. It's very much like what we see happening within social media in mm-hmm. a certain sense. Like everyone is constructing their own world. You know. Yeah. And it's very difficult for people to really fully relate to each other. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it kind of leads to this: like everyone is their is their own individual, right? And there's no there's no group to relate to, right? So that was kind of the utopian dream, I think, of the technocrats. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, they've achieved it, but at the cost of an actual society. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. So there is the potential that now, you know, liberty will be found within the virtual domain because it doesn't matter what an avatar does. I know, it's yeah, terrible. That sounds so bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> From, I'm not someone who's really big on video games. So that's Me just neither. Like... <laughs> Me neither. I really don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> but you can understand why that would make sense mm-hmm. given the circumstance that we're in. Yeah. Okay, so here's a hopeful scenario, right? And I'll, I'll base it on uh, evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. You know, for a while, I've made, I've made this, this, uh, this uh, case a few times now, so I'll try to do it briefly. You could say that what we're going through is very similar to what happened with the social insects or with 
cells themselves, right? Because in both cases, you had very large numbers that had to be managed in one way or another, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the case of like early cell colonies, right, you had, it was basically bacterial colonies, and they aggregated into larger and larger groups, and they became specialized, and then you had higher organisms and all this kind of stuff, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time, you still had some bacteria that remained individual, right? Same deal when it came to insects. So you know, evolutionary drivers, bees and ants, for whatever reason, they formed into these very dense colonies, and mm-hmm. they have um, very little individual liberty, but they have a collective kind of organism that's basically like hive mind, you could say, like is what we characterize it as. Mm-hmm. And they're great organisms, you know, they're like, as far as I can tell, bees like being bees, you know, but other insects opted out, uh-huh. right? So in an ideal world, what we would see is human beings having a similar type of of development because we have population densities that have to be managed. Mm -hmm. And some people will will opt out and probably there will be a cost, right? But hopefully there will be enough um, juice in the world to allow for that kind of diversity to happen. Because, you know, frankly, for a lot of people, um, I think a virtual existence would be preferred. Oh, yeah. And particularly if we see the kind of environmental devastation continuing, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be really difficult to not be inside of the virtual domain. Mm-hmm. So those who, who choose to go that route will be making uh, a serious choice. I mean, either way, it's a serious choice. But fundamentally, it's always this choice. It's always the choice between following your own individual determination mm-hmm. and accepting the conditions of the society within you happen within which you happen to be in. Usually it's a negotiation between the two, mm-hmm. but there may be now at some point or another a more stark choice mm-hmm. that has to be made. But hopefully that choice will still be there. Mm-hmm. To, to Young, he characterized individuation as the, the fusing of the individual psyche with the collective psyche. Huh. How's that? Well, you have... Um, you have, a, say, a collective psyche, something you inherit when you're born. It, pl- it uses sim- to, to this is to young. Oh, is he making a distinction between individuation and an, and an individual? Yeah, the okay, process of individuation is the uh, the fusing of your individual psyche, your individual consciousness, and the collective psyche, or what he would call the, the collective unconscious. Well, I, and, I'd say that probably to the extent that we don't do that, we're completely useless to society. Mm-hmm. He he said. Uh, the, the, that process is not for the for the lighthearted. It's it's not to the, be taken up by everybody. The process of individuation, becoming an individual. Okay, I'm a little confused because I thought mm-hmm. you were saying that the the individ, it, the process of individu- individuation from the point of view of Jung was to uh, be a, a node within the kind of collective consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Uh, well, it would be. To recognize the past and how it plays in your consciousness, like um, so, it would be to free yourself from the ideal idealization of the collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. Is that a good way to say it? Uh, I, I guess so, to my understanding. Uh, I mean, that would make sense. Yeah, I, I thought I thought you were saying the opposite, and I was kind of imagining, you know, because there is an interesting issue here where. Um, you can imagine that 
a self-conscious person would have the same kind of difficulty in handing themselves over to the group consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right? So it would be a kind of self-sacrifice for a person who says, well, I could be this individual, but in order to play a role in this, you know, I need to basically sublimate my own individual concerns. Mm-hmm. And there's something noble about that, and I think some people are able to do it on that basis, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's acknowledging that you are an individual, but without you being a node in the system, there wouldn't be a system. Yeah, and that you know there is a role to be played there, and that it's important, and it's where you were born. You know, quite often, I think it's on the basis of connection that that mm-hmm. decision is made, because you recognize that you know there are people you love and who you want to be able to support, and that if you follow your own individual path, you're basically abandoning them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a maybe traditionally more the way that people would get folded into a society and become a functional part of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the extent to which I think it does still play a role for a lot of people, but I think there is more uh, kind of just conforming pressure that happens in totalitarian states and in highly kind of technocratic and industrialized mm-hmm. civilizations. So, and that that feels I think more like coercion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think. Uh, Sorry, my brain just went. Well, we did we did just talk for an hour, so you already know, wow. that was yeah that was a good run. Wow, yeah, it's it's hard to think you know for an hour and keep uh, keep it all on point. <laughs> it's hard to think for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's hard to think. It's a lot of energy, and uh, but yeah, this is a really nice conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be happy to continue at any time. We could we could take a break for a minute and continue, but I think I don't know. It's a little later than I thought, and an hour is a good length for a, for an episode. Yeah, we do call it the Assembly of Sounds Radio Hour for no reason at all because most of them are not an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but it just sounds good. I like Radio Hour. It's a good concept. Maybe if I really get my shit together, I'll figure out how to make it an hour long <laughs> all the time. Uh-huh. But that would be really that would be more like a totalitarian approach. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be an hour all exactly. the, every time. <laughs> yep, that's the way it used to be. Radio is a format, you know. So yeah. you had to fit into the format. Yeah, and well. it's funny when you really think about what it requires in order to do that. It's mm-hmm. such a juggle, you know. You really just have to be, and there, and almost all of the old programs were like that. One of the great things about podcasting is that it broke that mold, mm-hmm. and people can have things of an, at a natural length. Yeah, you know? and there's no bandwidth restrictions, you know. Exactly. You get the you get the full conversation as it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to say while you're here? Um, uh, well, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Great, me I would too. Love to come back out and, and have another one. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, uh, that's. Uh, I look forward to that too. I think it's excellent. And thanks for uh, coming out here and for uh, saying, "Hey, I want to do this again." Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. great to have you here. Okay. <laughs> Till next time. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>